0: You please open your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 66. Today we bring our time in Isaiah to a close. Consider your life. What is your life and how is it measured? What is your life and how is it measured? Now I'm not sure if you've noticed, but each of our sermons in Isaiah this summer have been named after a classic piece of literature. I've done a lot of fiction reading this summer and in particular in the classics, and I've thought a lot about story this summer, about the nature of stories. Is your life a comedy or is it a tragedy? How can you answer that question? What is your life and how is it measured? The simple answer is that you can only define any story by its conclusion. You can only read the nature of the story in light of its ending. How do you know if it's a comedy or tragedy? Basically, it depends on if they die at the end. Consider the tragedy of Macbeth. It's one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. In Macbeth, there's a man with great aspirations who eventually gains the throne. He does so by way of intrigue and murder, and after gaining all of the things that he wanted, we find him in the castle, act five, scene five, what I believe to be the pinnacle of the play. Macbeth's wife has just committed suicide off stage, and Macbeth defines life. He philosophizes about life. He speaks about the nature of life and what it means to be alive. And here is how he describes it. He says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What is your life and how is, is it measured? Well, Macbeth thought that life was with no value, that everything he gained was of no worth. Later, William Faulkner would pick up Shakespeare's quote and use that exact same phrase, the sound and the fury, to describe the futility of life, that life is meaningless. That was his conclusion. What is your life, and how is it measured? There is no way to accurately assess the ending of your life, that your life without the ending. You cannot properly comprehend whether or not the events of your life are a glorious triumph or a mournful tragedy without knowing how your story ends. And by ending, I do not mean the end of your days here on earth. There are many people who have experienced tragic or horrible endings in this physical life who have been triumphant through eternity. We come now to the end of the story, but I don't just mean the end of the book of Isaiah or the end of Isaiah's life. These words that we are looking at today are lovingly given by God so that you can know the ending of your story. When you die, there is not supposed to be a cliffhanger ending. For the Christian, the words that I'm about to read provide for us perhaps the greatest picture of future glory, of anything that we can find anywhere in the New Testament and bordering on anywhere in the entire Bible. So please follow along now as I read to you from the marvelous word of God, Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them, and "'Bring their fears upon them. "'Because when I called, no one answered. "'When I spoke, they did not listen. "'But they did what was evil in my eyes "'and chose that in which I did not delight. "'Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. "'Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake "'have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. "'But it is they who shall be put to shame.' The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For the Lord, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord." just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out, And look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Let's pray. Father, today as we come before this massive and beautiful and challenging text, Lord, I pray that we would approach the passage with hope and with humility. That you would use this passage to produce in us a correct perspective of life and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that each and every one in this room would be aware of the true ending of their life, and if there is anyone who right now is on the trajectory towards condemnation and judgment and hell. Lord, we pray that you would do a radical work to transform them today. And we pray for those who are currently following Christ, who know you, those who are aware that there is an ending of joy for them, but they are so bogged down with the realities of this life that you would use these words of life to give them hope and joy and peace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before moving too far, you should know that this passage is, without competition, the most controversial that I have preached through in all of Isaiah. There are endless debates about What is being said? There are debates especially regarding the specific explanations of what God is promising to his people. It usually revolves around how you understand eschatology, which is the study of the end times. Now, regarding these things, I should tell you that all of the major views look at the passage that we are looking at today, which is all of chapter 66, and we're actually going to backtrack slightly into chapter 65 they look at these passages both as a source text to defend themselves and as a problem text where they come to it and say, this just breaks our system at least a little bit. Every humble Bible scholar comes to these words and has to admit they are too grand, too magisterial, too incredible to fully understand them on this side of eternity. And for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. Just as a side note, if you, if you read... The books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I think that when Paul was writing them, he was reading a great deal of the latter parts of the book of Isaiah. There's so many references. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You haven't comprehended it. You can try, we can try today, but you will not comprehend it. But then he says this interesting thing in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In other words, you don't know, but there are things that you do know. What the Spirit has revealed, let's focus in on, let's understand, let's seek to grasp. So don't just say, I can't get it, so why bother thinking about it at all? He says, what the Spirit has revealed to us, these things we are to consider. There are heavenly promises that are literally impossible to be understood on this side of heaven But there are things that we should consider today. My approach could easily become at this point to be academic and make a debate between major theological points on eschatology. And that's actually not a bad idea to have that kind of conversation at some point. It would probably be beneficial to many people in our church to study, myself included. However, if I was to bog us down this morning with that kind of debate, I think it would detract from what is actually being set before us. The purpose of this chapter is not debate. The purpose of this chapter is to produce joy and hope in God's people. So for that reason, my approach is simply going to tell you my position, which for those who are aware of the distinctions of eschatology, my viewpoint is most closely aligned with the amillennial perspective. But regardless of how familiar you might be with eschatology, the point of the passage is the same. It's here to help you know the end of your story. So I want to point at the beginning two different conclusions that we will see. There's the first, which is the conclusion of sound and fury, and there is the second, which is that of utopia. These are the two lenses through which we are going to examine this passage. Let's consider first the sound. God describes the biography of two different types of people in chapter 66, and this is how God describes his enemies. In verse 3, he says that they have, quote, chosen their own ways. In other words, rejected God's prescribed path for life. It also says that their soul delights in abominations. These people love the things that God hates. Everything that God seeks out and desires and enjoys, they are disgusted by them. And they get pleasure from that which is wicked. They seek satisfaction everywhere except for the one place where it can be found. It's not that these people are ignorant or that the right path is something that is invisible to them. They are aware of right and wrong. Verse 4, the Lord says, When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. But there is another defining mark that is highlighting those who will experience the judgment of God. The enemies of God act in hostility towards God's people. Verse 5 says, Your brothers who hate you, and cast you out for my name's sake have said let the lord be glorified that we may see your joy what they're doing there is mocking them oh yeah let god be glorified go ahead we can see you be joyful in that but it's they who will be put to shame he is mocking those who mock god's people do you understand what he's saying He is communicating to his faithful followers and telling them, don't worry about those people who hate you. Don't think that it's a big deal when they mock you. Don't think that you are alone when you are exiled or banished for my name's sake. Why not? Because God promises to punish those who hate his people. What is your life and how is it measured? Well, you can only know by considering the end of the story. Verse 6 says, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. None of us have ever had the experience of waking up one morning and hearing the sound of clashing swords and shields bashing against one another over the hill. In many places and throughout history, when you heard a sound like that, you knew that there was warfare taking place. That's something that people were trained to listen for in Israel because often people would come and attack their city gates. You listen for warfare. And he says there's a sound, an unmistakable sound, a shot heard around the world kind of sound where we will hear the destruction, the recompense of God's enemies. Notice that these people in this passage are in the temple. God is stomping out false worship. In the text that speaks about eating pig's flesh and sacrifices. And you'll notice sometimes it says things about sacrificing, like those who sacrifice lambs are also evil. Aren't we supposed to do that? What is God saying? He's not saying that you shouldn't do what he had told them to do in the Old Covenant. He's saying that the heart with which they do it is a heart of evil. They weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping themselves. Think how Jesus, the God that was supposed to be worshiped by these people, When he walked into the temple that was all about him, he was treated like a stranger. Worse than that, he was treated as an outcast. The lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they all tried to dishonor him and discredit him every time he walked in those gates. As verse 18 says, God knows the thoughts and hearts of every person. You're coming to church today. I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful the Lord brought you in through these doors. It's no accident that you were sitting in that seat and hearing my voice this morning. But I want you to know, God's not interested in church attendance. He's interested in your heart. And there are many on the last day who will appear to everyone else to look as though they are religious. There were many in Jerusalem that appeared pious and righteous. But God knows the heart, and He will go to every place, including into a church to render His recompense. There's going to be wailing, there's going to be suffering, because God promises to punish His enemies. But there's not only just going to be sound, there will also be fury. Jump down to verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger in fury, and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by His sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. For those who have been with us from the beginning of Isaiah, these promises of fiery judgment have probably begun to feel common. Sometimes when you hear something over and over, it seems to desensitize you to the extremity of it. To those who pursue their own path, those who delight in evil, those who hate God's people, the end of their story, is going to be more agonizing and brutal than anyone could imagine. Revelation 20, refers to it as the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 14, says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. The final words of Isaiah's prophecies are very similar words about the exact same torment. It says, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What does it mean that their worm shall not die? Well, as it is often true in Isaiah's prophecies, God is using an observable, earthly, natural illustration to make his point. The picture that God is painting is a pile of dead bodies that is left over from a vicious battle. And the fallen enemies lay strewn across the battlefield, and anyone who would come close enough to see their carcasses would find large carnivorous worms that would make a meal of whatever flesh and fat might be found there. This kind of worm was very common in Israel. It's about the size of my pinky finger. But here's the thing. When the flesh of a body is fully consumed, the worms die because there's nothing left to eat. However, those who suffer under the wrath of God will never be consumed. The pain never stops. The worm doesn't die. The fire isn't quenched. The wrath of God for sin is forever. You might think that this is extreme or that this is too harsh. But consider that our God is the just judge of the universe. His punishments always fit the crime. Those who function as his enemies and enemies of his people, he promises to judge them with the full unvented fury of his wrath forever. Now, if you had to endure the full unvented fury and wrath of a mosquito for a single day, you would likely speak of it as the worst day of your life. God's unbridled wrath is incomprehensible in his ferocity. And that's the end of the story. That's the end for everyone who rejects Christ. The fact of the matter is, you can get everything that you want in this life. And if that's the end of your story, it is a tragedy. You will likely outlive your reputation. You will most likely outlive your physical good looks and your strength. You will probably outlive many of your friends and many of your possessions. In other words, you might live long enough to see that your earthly kingdom is as fragile as glass and as temporal as a sandcastle. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you lived every day for the rest of your life, only growing more healthy, only growing more beautiful, only growing more wealthy and popular and powerful. And let's just say that you make it to the ripe old age of 100, and then in that moment you die. Well, if that was you, pretty much everyone in the world would look at you as a success. Not just a success, the success, a brilliant success. They would use you as a positive example of how to squeeze the most that you can possibly get out of life. And that's because biographers don't know the end of the story. Because there's a wall that they can't see past. They can only see till you take your last breath. But God does not gauge success the same way that the world does. What is your life and how is it measured? Knowing that there awaits a judgment of such gargantuan proportions... That should have at least two effects on those people in the room. First, it should cause anyone who doesn't know the Lord to see that the way they have followed results in death. There is no ultimate joy or peace in the things you pursue if you are not trusting in Christ. If you are not a Christian, you are currently living under the cloud of God's wrath. You are living under a death sentence. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ or this judgment is the end of your story and it's the only part of the story that truly matters. It would be a tragedy if someone heard the gospel message today and they walked out happy to live in this life without Christ only to see their eternal destiny be one of judgment. Trust in Christ. Secondly, it should cause those of us in the room who do know Jesus to be much more vigilant, to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. There's only one message that can snatch sinners out of this destiny. You cannot change anyone's heart, you know that. You cannot manipulate someone into the kingdom. You cannot force someone to trust in Christ. But truly ask yourself, have you thought about the fate of your lost friends, your lost family members? If they were to die right now, are you convinced that you've done all that was in your power to point them to Christ? If you don't have any regrets in this area, you probably just haven't lived long enough. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let the promises of judgment be part of the motivation to lovingly proclaim freedom to all of those people who are still captives to their sin. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers and sisters, let this motivate us to proclaim God's goodness and mercy because if people die without that mercy, they will only experience his justice. That's the end of the story for some, but there is another kind of conclusion. The end of the story for those who have trusted Christ ends much differently. So far in this chapter, we've seen a few description, <clears throat> descriptions of those who follow Christ, but perhaps the most concise and clear description is found in verse 2. It says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There's a very different end of the story to those who match that description. The second point that we will see today is utopia. Many of the promises here revolve around the idea of the full restoration of Jerusalem to what it was meant to be. A place where God's people live in holiness, worshiping him faithfully. There are promises that Jerusalem is going to be a place that loves and nurtures the people of God. This does not describe Isaiah or Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. That's not what Jerusalem was like. It does not describe Jerusalem in Jesus' day. If you read any of the gospel accounts of Jesus in Jerusalem, you will know that is not what Jerusalem is like. That is not Jerusalem in our day after the 1949 restoration of the nation of Israel. That is not describing Jerusalem in our day. That's not what Jerusalem is like. This is speaking of the new Jerusalem that is to come. It is speaking of heaven. Listen again to the tenderness of God and his gracious promises for us in verses 12 through 14. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted In Jerusalem, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. Do you see the comforting work of God? I don't know if you've seen my wife up here. She's not here now. She's comforting a baby. The baby started to cry. What did she do? I didn't tell her to do this. She just had to go take care of the baby. There were needs. And she is doing everything she can, wherever she is in this building, to help that baby feel comfort. The baby's teething right now. It's got two little teeth that just popped through in the last week or so. That's not comfortable. So she is comforting the baby. God says, look, I'm going to treat you in that way. I am here to comfort you forever And he says, like a father reaches down and takes his son's hand and walks with him and guides him and leads him and shepherds him, you will know my hand. These words are given for the downcast. They're given for people who are discouraged and distraught. These are good promises of hope designed to be given to those who are distracted by the present suffering so that they can't see the end of their own story. Through passages like this one, God is calling us to be heavenly minded. He is establishing within us an eternal perspective. One time I was on a mission trip to Jamaica back in 2009, and we had some downtime one morning and there was only one task that had to be completed, and that was that one small group of people needed to take some uh, bags of luggage filled with important things over to another town nearby, but because we had some extra time, they said that they were going to stop at the beach on the way there. And so having nothing to do, I asked them, hey, can I hop in the car with you and travel to the beach with you? And they said, of course you can come with us, but you're going to have a couple of heavy suitcases full of sound equipment on your lap if that's okay. And I said, yeah, that sounds fine. That's not a big deal. And do you know why? Because on the other side of that 10-minute drive, there was a beautiful, empty Caribbean beach. And so I was totally fine with the idea of being slightly discomforted because I know what's at the end of that journey. You can tolerate a great deal if you know there is a reward at the end. This is how the Apostle Paul endured the extreme persecution that he faced. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he tells us the secret of how to joyfully endure any hardship that he ever would encounter. He said, so we do not lose Do you ever lose heart? Do you ever feel the trials of this world are insurmountable and they are so forceful against you that there's nothing you can do but get your head above the water and breathe for a moment before falling back underneath the waves and just praying that God can get you through one more day? He says, don't lose heart. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Every single one of us are living as two parts, a soul and a body. And your body is wasting away. Paul's was perhaps wasting away in a more observable sense after the beatings that he endured and the suffering that he experienced and the imprisonments that he was currently under trial with. But your body is also wasting away. But is your inner self being renewed day by day? Here's how he does that. In the midst of all the suffering, he says, For, or because, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. At the end of the story, there's something great. Every moment of suffering for the sake of Christ is producing something for you. It is producing something for you. It is creating something for you. There is a benefit that you will receive because of your experience of a trial or suffering. And he says, it is an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. But notice, he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. There's a lot of churches right now preaching the health-wealth gospel. You can't get too far in evangelical circles without bumping into that kind of teaching. God just wants you to be healthy. He just wants you to be wealthy. He just wants to pour out his blessings on you. Well, look, I agree with that. I just believe what Paul said. Look, I might have to experience suffering and persecution and imprisonment here and now, but I'm not looking to here and now. I am looking to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, he says, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul could suffer so greatly because he knew the end of his story. He knew that every beating he endured was producing an eternal blessing that cannot be calculated because it cannot be measured against any earthly prize. The smallest blessing in heaven will outweigh all of the world's wealth and status and power if they were all combined. We need passages like this one to help us see the end of our story. We need to set our eyes on the glorious realities of our heavenly home. Before moving ahead, it's important that you remember that there are typically both near fulfillments and far fulfillments for the prophecies in Isaiah, and that's true here in this chapter as well. The promises made to us in Isaiah 65 and 66 are certainly speaking about heaven. However, there are clear truths that are to be understood in terms of our current life as well. This is certainly speaking about a heavenly fulfillment, but it is also speaking about life in the church. And that's good news, because what is the church but pulling heaven into this place in time? The church is God's gracious gift to allow us to have a foretaste of heaven. Well, what is heaven at its most simple? It is a place where God's people live in holiness, worshiping Him forever. You might notice that's the exact same definition that I gave for the New Jerusalem. It's a place where God's people live in holiness, worshiping Him faithfully. That is what the church is supposed to do now. That is how we are supposed to foreshadow what is coming on the other side. This congregation is supposed to be a preview of heaven. When people on the outside look at us, they should have a perspective that there is just a dim picture of the glorious realities that are coming in eternity. The more we become like Christ, the more that picture is accurate. We certainly are not in heaven yet, and this church certainly is not heaven yet. We still sin, we still get sick, we still die. But our unity, our purity, our passion for Jesus, that is all supposed to be just a small glimmer of the great beauty that we will one day experience. If you have your Bible open, please turn back one page to Isaiah chapter 65. I want you to see a few of the promises that God makes for those who are in Christ. Since Genesis 2, remember God's creating work has been on pause. Days one through six, he creates, he creates, he creates, he creates, and then after each creation, he says, it is good. And then finally, he creates man and woman, and he says, it is very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And after that, we don't see God creating physical universes or earths or skies or animals anymore. We don't see him acting in that way moving forward. But now, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, tells us that there is a time coming when God is going to make a new heaven's and new earth. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. into mind. Now, what exactly is it that won't come into mind when he says these former things? Well, some people believe that that means our sin is going to be forgotten. That's possible. Other people think that it's speaking about our sorrows being forgotten. Others think that it's a reference not to our memory of experiences, but the memory of the way things are. Let me explain. There are some times when you look back at your life and you just can't remember how you used to operate. I moved into a new house last September, and there are things about our other house that I really have to stress my memory to remember. Where did we have that in our old home? I just can't remember. Maybe that's just the the aging, but he says to us, there are things that you're not going to remember. You're not going to remember, I believe is what he's talking about. You will not remember what it was like to desire sin. You will not remember what it was like to feel temptation. Those things are going to be so foreign to you that you will never again, not only be tempted, but you won't even remember what it was like. Oh, what a joyful day that will be. Verse 18 says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Notice here that the new heaven and new earth is also called Jerusalem. These two are supposed to be understood as the same thing. They are symbolic representations of heaven itself. It is the place where sorrows go to die. There is no suffering. There is no sickness. There's no death. They're not permitted. He says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, here we're using poetic language to speak of fulfillment. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Here in this world, we experience a lot of futility. Everything that we build has to be maintained. Everything that we make will someday belong to somebody else. The book of Ecclesiastes deals with the question of meaning and futility for those who work and work and work, only to someday have to leave it all behind to somebody else. The metaphorical point being made here is that in heaven you will never be disappointed. You will always be satisfied. You will never lack. You will never feel cheated out of a blessing many women in this room have experienced the devastating loss of marriage Uh, losing a baby before they can even experience their first breath seems like such a tragedy but consider the fact that their soul will experience just as much time and just as much delight in heaven as you will God made that child not to last just a few months in the womb. God made that child to be eternal. As C.S. Lewis once said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors do you see his point the things that you think will last the things around you that you think are going to be here for so long those are but a breath but every human being will last forever and those who last forever in heaven they will experience eternal joy Consider the promise of God's provision in heaven. He he says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Sometimes you pray here and you just don't feel as though God is hearing you because the answer is delayed. Of course, he is hearing you and he's just saying no or he's saying wait. But sometimes you You pray for something you truly desire, something that is good, something that you think should occur, and you are just pleading with God, Lord, I'm asking you for something. I'm asking you to heal this person. I'm asking you to save this person. I'm asking you to help me be more bold. I'm asking you to help me stop in this pattern of sin. And as you're praying, you just feel like it's so long in coming. He says, in heaven, it's not like that. Before you can even say it, he's already given it to you. And God promises perfect peace in heaven. He says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It is the perfect reversal of the curse. It's going from the destructive violence of our world today back to the days of Eden, Everything in heaven will be like it was in the days of Adam and Eve before the fall. Now, I realize that I'm moving really quickly through these promises, but I want you to know there's a reason why I'm moving really quickly. First of all, because if I just spent the time that they deserved, we would be here for a year. But secondly, because all of these promises that I'm focusing on, these are not the big one. The big promise is the one that I haven't mentioned yet. If you go forward into chapter 66 look to verses 18 and 19. Here is the big promise. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. Moses begged the Lord, show me your glory. You remember when he's on Sinai and he's desirous his heart the one thing he wants more than anything else is just show me your glory and God told him that he couldn't do it because if I do that you will be destroyed but in Christ we have seen God's glory and in heaven we will see him fully we will no longer have the barrier of our sin we will be able to stand fearless and faithful before the throne and there is a sign that God promises to put among us What is the sign he's talking about? Well, let me help you out. He says that this is the sign that will signify a radical shift. It is when the Gentiles are now permitted into the covenant of God. Well, what was the event that tore the veil? What was the moment that granted us access? What was the sign that shifted all of history? It is the sign and symbol that has come to signify Christ's followers ever since. It is the sign of the cross. Not the wood, not the necklace that you might be wearing right now, not the shape. There's nothing mystical or magical about any cross, including the one upon which Christ died. The power was not in the object, the power was in the person. The power was in the act of Jesus humbling himself to the point of death. Jesus, the very glory of God, set himself on display for all to see by being lifted high on the cross, and where he be lifted up, may he draw all men unto himself. Chapter 66 opened up with a question. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Where is the place of my rest? He asks. Well, you might notice if you carefully read the chapter that he never answers that question. The question is never fulfilled in Isaiah's book. But there is an answer provided for us in Scripture. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 5. and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is my resting place. Heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool, what place am I going to have to rest? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is utterly committed to the ransom church of God being saved to sin no more. He is committed to the ransom church of God being saved forevermore. Earlier this week, I met with Larry Langley. We get together every once in a while and have a good conversation about the Lord. And He shared with me a quote from J.A. Packer's phenomenal book, Knowing God. In it, we see an example of the heart of God towards man. He writes, God was happy without humans before they were made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed them after they had sinned. But, as it is... He has set his love upon particular sinners and this means that by his own free voluntary choice he, God, the Lord himself will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them to heaven. He has in effect resolved that henceforth for all eternity his happiness shall be conditional upon ours thus God saves not only for his glory but also for his gladness if that does not just cause your heart to soar I don't know what will God did not have to intertwine his eternal happiness with our own what grace and what humility what wondrous love what mystery what is your life and how is it measured Your life is a moment, it's a vapor, it's a fluttering of the eye or like a dream when you wake up, it just can't be remembered, it can't be measured by the things that you build or the things that you buy. It's going to be measured only by its eternal conclusion. And what you do with Jesus Christ in this lifetime signifies everything. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful promises. We thank you for the promise that we will never again taste death if we were in Christ, that we will never again taste sorrow or suffering in heaven. But God, most of all, I thank you for Jesus Christ. Heaven is heaven because he is there. And Lord, I thank you for him. I thank you of the promise that we will see his glory that there will be no more glory hidden from our eyes. God, I pray that every one of us in this room would have such an eternal perspective that nothing that happens in this earth could shake us. I thank you for the promises that we find in Isaiah that show us that you win. And that you will lead your people to victory. That you are the good healer. That you are the good deliverer. We pray, God, that we would see that good promise. And delight in Christ every day. We pray these things in the precious name of our Savior, your Son. Amen.